Welcome back to the KPO Podcast. I am your host, Chigisha. It's September, in case you haven't noticed. And September marks the Hispanic National Heritage Month. It starts on September 15th and continues through October 15th. The idea for Hispanic Heritage Month began as a way to promote the history, culture, and contributions of Hispanic Americans, specifically those whose ancestors came from Spain, Mexico, the Caribbean, and Central and South America. Communities mark the achievements of Hispanic and Latino Americans with festivals and educational activities. In honor of Hispanic Heritage Month, this week on the KPO podcast, we have author Angie Cruz. She is here to tell us about her book, How Not to Drown in a Glass of Water. I think you'll enjoy this interview. It is incredibly compelling. I've learned a great deal, and I think you will too. Also, you'll start hearing Cara Romero's voice in your head. You'll know what I mean when you listen to the interview. So let's get started. Our guest today is award-winning novelist Angie Cruz. Her novel, Dominicano, was the inaugural book pick for the GMA Book Club and chosen as the 2019-2020 Word Up Uptown Reads. It was shortlisted for the Women's Prize, longlisted for the Andrew Carnegie Medals for Excellence in Fiction. She is here today to talk about her newest novel, How Not to Drown in a Glass of Water. Welcome to the KPL Podcast. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. So first question we always ask our authors is, tell us about your novel. So tell us about How Not to Drown in a Glass of Water. So Cara Romero um, is a 56-year-old woman who was laid off from her job at a factory in New Jersey after working in the same place for 26 years. And she's forced to restart her life. And she enters a senior workforce program where every week for 12 weeks, she um, meets with a job counselor and it's supposed to be doing job training. Mm -hmm. But she doesn't quite do job training because what the sessions end up doing for her is that she tells the story of her life. Yes. And I am hanging on to every page as I'm reading this. Her voice just jumps out of the page. And so could you tell us more about her? Where did she come from? What were some of your uh, inspirations for her? Um, You know, I actually, when I started working on this book, I myself was thinking of changing careers. (laughs) I was in a moment of despair. It was 2017. Trump was president. And um, we had just gotten announced this thing called the Muslim ban. And there was a call on social media for immigration lawyers. And in that moment, I felt so useless because I thought, oh, immigration lawyers are the superheroes of the moment. And I said, what could I do with writing? And I thought, maybe I'm young enough still to study a new field. And I started thinking if that was really realistic at the time I was in my 40s. And then I saw this woman on a platform. I was visiting my mom in New York City. And I saw this woman um, reading um, an ESL book, um, teaching herself English. And I started thinking about all my aunts and grandmother and my mother, all who were laid off during the Great Recession in 2007, 2008. And how hard it was for them to restart their lives and how they eventually became part of the demographic of women in New York City that never were able to enter long-term employment. And 
I started imagining me myself thinking I want to just change my life and how many resources I have, what would it be like to have to go on a job interview, not always speaking the language or not, you know, not having any tech um, education to answer these interview questions. And I got a Romero showed up to answer those questions on that day. I started working at uh, working on the book on my phone. Mm-hmm. I asked her the most basic question first, which is tell me something about yourself. And she said, my fictional character who was with me for a very long time, he said, do you want to know something about myself? I will tell you something about myself. I came to America because my husband wanted to kill me and I was arrested. I was arrested by her voice and I wanted to find out more. And I took out, you know, I had this Google doc. I was typing everything she said on the commutes that I was taking around the country. Was it on the bus or the train? And every time I got on any kind of travel that was more than 30 minutes, I would just write an answer to Cara um, to one of the questions. I would have Cara Romero answer a question. And literally, I just, I feel like the first draft of the book, it was me listening to this woman that was very different than me. Maybe someone I wouldn't spend as much time listening to in real life Mm -hmm. and thinking about how much people carry and how much we can learn if we actually spent more time asking questions and listening to each other. So now, did you have some challenging challenges in writing her? I mean, were there times when she didn't want to answer a question? Oh, uh, do you mean like writer's block? <laughs> yeah, writer's block. Just, yeah, you're, you're, you ask a question and it's just like the answer's not really coming. Yeah, of course, because the thing about writing is that you have to be in a good place to receive, mm-hmm. right? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm a writer, but I'm also a professor and I'm a mother and um, I wear many hats in my life. And I think that the moments where I have the least resistance in my writing are the moments where I have more space, Mm -hmm. Um, both heart space and time space where, you know, I'm rested and, and I have a space for inspiration. And I think that this is why commute like I create the constraint of commutes because I feel like in some ways being on a plane or a train while you're commuting is kind of an in-between time. Mm-hmm. There's not much that can happen during that time. And you could train yourself if you're a writer. I think you could train yourself to be creative if you have a practice that's consistent. And for some people that's they write as soon as they wake up or they'll have a ritual. But for this particular book, it was mostly when I was commuting And then the revision was different, right? Like the revision required um, a different kind of time and practice. And I no longer could work on my phone and I couldn't do it while I was commuting. But in the messy draft, that's how I did it. But I do think that if I would say one of the biggest challenges is always like you write something and you read it and you have to think, wait, what am I really trying to say here? And I had to, I guess the biggest challenge is us as writers putting aside some of our own prejudices or, or issues when we think about what, what is the sexuality or the sexual life of a woman 10 years older than me? Mm-hmm. What could that look like? Maybe exactly the same as it does for me. <laughs> like, why does it have to be different? And how do we learn these narratives? Mm-hmm. Right? So part of it is that I think that when I'm writing, I want to 
push against all the different stereotypes that exist about women and aging and Latina, Latine community. Um, but that doesn't always happen in the first draft. So yeah, there's got to be layers to it. And I think it's got to be approached in layers, I would imagine. Of course. So now the format of the book is unique. And so why did you decide to tell this, tell her story in this way? I feel that the bureaucracy that many of us have to navigate throughout our lives tell a story in themselves. And, um, and I think that by centering documents, applications, all the different kinds of forms that we need to access something or that don't allow us to access something are really, really um, a significant part of our lives. It's surprising that not more books center these documents when I know so many people spend so much time on them. And, you know, and I was just even reading about work, right? Like very few novels center work Mm -hmm. or working or looking for work. And, you know, I just, you know, this, the Kirkus Review is doing a series on work books. And I was thinking it's one thing that we spend so much time on and yet it doesn't show up in narratives is perplexing. Mm-hmm. So I think I, that, I mean, that's the reason I put them in there. I mean, in some ways, because I find them incredibly interesting, but also I think they work as a counter narrative to the stories that um, got us saying. And um, they also allow like just on a reading level, like just like in a reading experience, I think it allows a breath for the reader. So it's like you get a little break from Gada telling her story and it allows you to reflect a little about the bigger Mm -hmm. world that she inhabits. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that struck me, so as a librarian, I'm constantly working with the public and especially helping patrons when they are looking for jobs. And the computer is both a a great tool, but it can also be a barrier for them to Mm -hmm. find a job. And I think you capture that so perfectly in having those documents and and Cara answering the questions and everything. That is something I've I've seen. Even now in 2022, I'm seeing that. And this was her doing, trying to do this in 2008 when the book is set. So- yeah, in, in fact, the library, this is a perfect book for a library because the library is the senior workforce program. Mm-hmm. It is, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's doing a version of that, right? Like people go to the library now to get something printed, to ask questions about work, to apply to college, to look for classes. So in some ways, um, the library is doing so much work in order to support people in transition. Mm-hmm. in their lives. So in, in in this way, I think, yeah, it's interesting to think about the book, like a really good catalyst for conversation mm-hmm. for people who don't actually even know. I mean, that was part of my work too, like thinking, how could these documents subvert and teach people how to use these documents? For example, the residential lease, like not a lot of people read the fine print. And lose mm-hmm. their apartments or don't realize they have rights. And, you know, and I think that that kind of education through reading the documents, even in the novel, could be really useful for a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. So now I had read that uh, when you wrote Dominicana, you interviewed many people about living in New York City in the 16, 60s and 70s as immigrants. Did you do something similar for this book? No, I mean, this book... I think I, this book was greatly informed by the stories my family's stories my family have told me um, throughout my life 
about getting to work, going to work. I mean, I was also one of the main translators in my family. So my um, familiarity with documents from a number of people, but my um, going to the hospital, communicating ailments from my mother or like my grandmother, hearing about, you know, the closing of the factory, how traumatic that was after working for 25 years in the same place. Like, what do I do with myself now? (laughs) You know, the importance of labor. I think all of those things were really inspiring. But also, um, while I was working on Dominicana, I interviewed a lot of people from the same community, Washington Heights. And then I started an Instagram called Dominicanas New York City, where a lot, um, a number of people started to submit photos and stories. And all of this together, I think, has had me thinking about this moment, because many of these stories are around this moment in the Great Recession. And I feel like I did an interview, but I think I've been interviewing my entire life for this book in some Mm -hmm. ways by listening to the stories of um, the women um, in my community. Yeah, I would agree. Cause you, I mean, Gata's voice is so unique and just jumps off the page. Like she's, I could see her as this person out, you know, there's this person out there. Like she's real to me as I'm reading the book. Yeah. What's amazing is that she kept talking to me, like speaking to me in a way, and I kept writing her down and I, and she just was so alive for me, even though I've never met this person in real life. But what I love is that readers are saying, you know, like, for example, someone read the book, someone who interviewed me for the book, and she was going to the supermarket to buy rice, and she usually buys basmati rice. But she said, you know what, I'm going to get jasmine rice, because Gara Romero says it's better. And then she wrote to me and said, oh, my God, Gara Romero is informing my shopping decisions. Like her (laughs) voice is so strong. Yes. And then it took her a minute to realize that Gara Romero was a fictional character. Mm hmm. You know, and I love that, right? Like, I love that somehow she's become so real that she's like determining what you'll buy at the supermarket. Yeah, (laughs) that is that is incredible. One, you mentioned uh, Washington Heights. And so one of the things that's large in the book is the gentrification of Washington Heights in the novel. So and it's a big threat to Kara and her neighbor. So can you tell us more about this and that time period that it was set in? Well, gentrification is constant and ongoing, and it happens in different ways, right? But um, during that time, in particular, um, during the Great Recession, I do, from the research I have done, there was like a a moment where there was a lot of mobility in New York City, in particular in Washington Heights, Columbia University students started to move uptown because there were more laboratories. And this greatly impacted people who had been living in the neighborhood for a really long time. And there was already money insecurity because there were, there were no jobs. But mm-hmm. then there was also housing insecurity because a lot of people were being pushed out of their apartments. But so for me, I wanted to show how it plays out on all these different levels, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's gentrification, like you can't afford to live in a community. But also, if you think about the sisters, like in the book, where one has to leave the neighborhood so she could have more space, you know, or, or you have the ways that this community that's so tightly knit, you know, her neighbor who she's best friends with, like, she can't afford to stay in her building. And that means that she loses the entire support network, people who helped her with her daughter. That's really a cost and gentrification that we sometimes don't think about. It's not mm-hmm. just leaving your neighborhood. It's that extended families and um, long, um, long-term long built-in communities are also like elder care, child care, 
spirit care. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And all of that has become harder and harder to sustain. And what is that? What is the price of that long term? Mm -hmm. If we are not making sure that the communities that are so interdependent to each other can stay together. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not a value that I think that we think about when we think about profit, but there is a profit in making sure that people are okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And that, and that very much comes across in the story as you, you know, as you learn about Kara's neighbors and her sister and, uh, and, you know, I see how that's lost. That's something that I don't think I've ever had to think about until as I'm reading the book, I'm like, oh, that's right. Now she doesn't, you know, she's not close to the family. And then there's this, all of the neighbors that she's helping or taking care of. And those are that are helping her. It's, it's all coming apart. Now, one of the things I've noticed is that there are more and more uh, Latinx stories coming out. Do you feel like the landscape is now maybe changing and, and improving for the better for, for other writers? I mean, definitely since my first novel came out in 2001, where there was just a handful, like literally just four or five mm-hmm. books coming out a year, I do feel like there's been a dramatic shift, especially in um, young adult and children's books, which is good. Um, but still, the numbers are really low, right? Um, into 2020, I think 95% of the publishing industry was still being was still being published by white writers. And a lot of times when you do have a Latina character is still being written by a white writer, right? So um, yes, it's changing in the way that there are more books in adult fiction coming out. But if you think about the demographic and and how large the population is in Mm -hmm. the United States, especially in the the largest cultural producers like in California and New York for books and movies, et cetera, I think that we need to work so much harder to diversify the breadth of experiences of the Latin A experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. It's and better. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's not great. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I would love to see Kara on TV. Just I can see this as a as a limited series of you know like the twelve sessions that she has, and I I think that would that would be great to see that way. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, a number of people have said that already. They think she deserves a talk show, a movie, all kinds of things. <laughs> um, let's see what happens. I do think that um, I wrote her. It, it was, it was, it was an inspired book, mm-hmm. and I, I do believe in Cara Romero's story as one of um, uh, transformation and one that I hope will open up a conversation among generations. So yeah, let's make it a movie. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, if I need to sign anything, let me know. I'll be there. (laughs) Thank you. So what advice would you give to aspiring authors, aspiring writers? Don't give up. I mean, I think that um, my trajectory as a writer has been very non-traditional. Dominicana, I wrote it for 10 years, and then it took four years to find an editor that was willing to publish it. Many editors said to me that they didn't think the book had a market and now it's it's seen as a commercial success for a literary novel. Mm-hmm. I think that when I thought I couldn't sell my book and I wrote this book, How Not to Drown in a Glass of Water, I also knew that writers write. And even if no one wanted to publish my work, I will write my stories for myself. And thank God I continued to write because when the editor finally called a year later and she said, what else do you have? I was like, oh, I'm working on this book on my phone. <laughs> And she's like, I want that one too. 
So I think as writers, we always think that if I don't publish my book now, this is when it's supposed to be out in the world. It's never going to happen. But actually, if you keep at it, I do feel that a book will find its place. Yep. Always good, good advice. Never give up. Never give up. So what's next? Are you working on something new? Yeah, I, um, I have two projects. One is set in Italy and another one is about a young street photographer um, who is negotiating grief. Um, and that's all I can say right now because I'm okay. still so in the early stages, but I'm very excited about it. All right. Very nice. Well, I will look forward to the the next couple novels then. <laughs> so uh, I meant to ask this earlier, the title, how did you come about the title? How not to drown in a glass of water? Uh, well, titles are so hard, but I, you know, it was a moment where I was talking to two poet friends of mine and I was telling them about the book. And, you know, water comes up a lot in the book. And there's mm-hmm. this word called desaugal, which is to undrown from the inside that Romero mentions, which is talking could be a desaugo, but also I'm um, crying could be a desaugo. And then there's this really well-known expression, it, which is no te ahogues un vaso de agua, which is don't drown in a glass of water that someone will tell you when you're seemingly making a big deal out of something small. And then playing with the poets, we came up with this. Yeah, which I think works really well. It does. It works. Yeah, absolutely. So a question that we ask all of our authors, uh, what are you reading or what would you recommend that we read? What am I reading? I actually, the book that I recommend that I love so much and I think everyone should read is Ingrid um, Rojas Contreras, The Man Who Could Move Clouds, Who Moved Clouds. It's beautiful. It's a memoir about her getting amnesia and one of her parents having amnesia at the same time. But it's the wonderful example of how magic is real and the real is magic. All right. I have not heard of that one, but I am definitely going to add that to my list. It's really good. She's a wonderful writer. Our guest today is Angie Cruz and her novel is How Not to Drown in a Glass of Water. It is available right here at the Kirkwood Public Library and wherever compelling and gorgeous books are sold. Thank you again. Thank you so much for the interview. Um, I appreciate it. That's our show this week. I'm going to end on a quote by E.E. Cummings. It takes courage to grow up and become who you really are. Stay tuned next week for author Deanna Rayborn when she talks about her book, Killers of a Certain Age.